Hey, if you're new here, my name's Britt. I'm one of the pastors here. If you're not new, you already know who I am, so I don't need to reintroduce myself. I hope you had a very Merry Christmas. I hope that you either have escaped or have gotten through the illness that is going through this valley, and I hope that your pancreas recovers from all those cookies you've been eating, you know. So... um, Do you realize that today is going to be our last Sunday in 2018, and next Sunday it's going to be 2019? That's crazy. That's crazy. I'm really excited about uh, some of the stuff we have in the pipeline in terms of series and our teachings. Uh, We're going to look at Gideon this spring. I love Gideon, man. He's, He's an underdog from the very beginning, and yet God works through him. We're going to do a series called Devoted which is all about, like, what, does it, what is devotion really? What, what does it really mean to be devoted to something, and what does it mean to be devoted to God? And, uh, but going in today and then next Sunday, we're going to break through the new year with a little mini-series called Sacraments, in which we're going to look at these two sacraments that Sunridge um, follows, baptism and communion. And I can't, I can't wait. for You've got to come back next week and hear Jed talk about communion. We have, we have spent a lot of time talking about this series, and he has such an amazing perspective and history and a biblical understanding of communion. It's really going to help you. You're going to love the picture that comes out of communion from the, kind of the traditions that have been a part of it and, of course, the biblical account. But today, we're going to talk about baptism. And, you know, baptism is one of those things that... For, for many of us, it just seems so foreign, and there's so much inform- misinformation out about it, and people debate it, and we all come from different traditions, and it, you can have one or two overreactions. One, you could just throw your hands up and say, you know, I'm never going to figure it out. I'm just going to, like, pass on it and ignore it, and then there could be a total other overreaction in which you elevate it to the place of being part of becoming a Christian, that you have to be baptized in order to be saved. Or a lesser version, sometimes I think we impose it on our kids way too young because we're, we're convinced that if they're not baptized, they won't ever become a Christian or they can't be a Christian. But in researching for this message, you know, I found a great video that explains it in such a concise way. So just look at the screens. I'm a little concerned right now about your salvation and stuff. How come you have not been baptized? Because I never got around to it, okay? I don't know why you always have to be judging me. Because I only believe in science. But tonight, we are going up against Satan's caveman. And I just thought it would be a good idea if you... Felicidades. So don't let Nacho Libre baptize you. That, if you remember nothing, remember that, okay? So now it's clear, right? Everybody understands baptism. Actually, I thought it would be really good to start with a little levity on this topic because... I know that in our audience, so many of us come from different traditions on baptism. And, you know, what's, what's ironic and, and tragic, too, is that this beautiful picture of uh, 
our conversion to Christ, the, the symbolism that's involved in it, and like the, the way it unifies us has become like a, play, a, a point of division, and it's like pushed Christians apart, and it was never intended to be that way. In fact, I love Augustine's uh, quote on this, and I'm going to put it up on the screen, and I think it applies to a topic like this, in essentials, unity, and not essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Don't you love that? I love that. Because we want to keep the main thing the main thing, right? Jesus Christ and the gospel are number one. But that said, I think it's really important for us as Christians to understand what baptism is, what it means, and its, its underpinnings, where it comes from. So my goal today is to do the very best that I can as your pastor, as a friend, as a, as a co-struggler and seeker, to, to look at the Bible and determine, let, let's look at what does the Bible say about baptism, and including in that, included in that is what the Bible doesn't say. So, there's going to be a lot of notes today. It's going to be like Bible class. So, buckle up, get your note sheet out, because you can already see we're going to cover a lot of ground today. We're going to talk about baptism, what, what that word means. We're going to look at the history of baptism outside of Christianity. We're going to look at the New Testament evidence and the pattern that we see in the New Testament for baptism. And time, uh, you know, if there's enough time left over, and there was in the first service, so I guess there will be in the second service, we're going to look at some frequently asked questions, okay? You guys ready? No? Okay, you got to help me out here, because I know I'm like very Bible professor, which, by the way, I have my professor clothes on. <laughs> so let's vote before we get into this. Um, Mr. Rogers or Stitch Fix model? What do you think? How many say Mr. Rogers? How many say Stitch Fix model? I can't even say it. Okay. So, not cool, creepy. That's what you're saying. Okay. Anyway. Okay, what is baptism? First of all, this word in the Greek is baptizo. Baptizo. And it means to dip or sink. This is in your notes. Or to immerse. So it, it's actually just like to put something in the water. It do, it, in its origins, it doesn't have a religious connotation. But as used in the New Testament, or even in the early church time, it was used to symbolically to show your allegiance to a teacher or philosophy for ceremonial cleansing. Or in the case of a Christian, it is the way that we personally identify with the message of the gospel with the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what the word means. It's just to immerse, to put in the water. Okay, so a history of baptism outside of Christianity. And you, you'll probably be surprised to know that it wasn't just the Christian community that practiced baptism. In fact, the first thing in your notes, baptism was performed by various pagan cults and sects. Pagans, non-Christian, non-religious, different kinds of religion, practiced baptism. And in, and in each case, that baptism was a way that you symbolized your allegiance to that message or the cult. Uh, it, it may, have been, it may be, have been used to, uh, as a part of your ceremonial cleansing to become worthy of that religion. And certainly, it was a way of you identifying and connecting your allegiance to that 
pagan religion. Baptism was used also in ceremonial purification rites of Judaism. So, you, you know, there's a thread that you can follow from the practice of uh, the traditional early Jews that, that you can see how baptism today is kind of connected to that, how it became uh, the symbol that it is there, or that it is today. You know, um, the, the Jews of Jesus' time would not have called it baptism, but it was part of their ceremonial cleansing, and often in the temple or in, closely uh, connected to it would be a mikvah, which is just a pool of water. And if you were a devout Jew and you became ceremonially unclean, like you came in contact with a corpse, uh, you would have to go through a cleansing in order to be able to enter the temple again. And so you would dip yourself in a ritual in this mikvah, this what we would see as a, a baptismal pool, uh, in order to become ceremonially clean enough to participate in temple activities. Also in the history of baptism, followers of John the Baptist acknowledged repentance through baptism. This is an important distinction that we'll come back to. But those that followed John the Baptist, you may have read about him in the Gospels, uh, they connected to his message of repentance through baptism. In Mark, Mark's Gospel, chapter 1, verse 4, and so John, that is the Baptist, came baptizing in the desert region and preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So, during this time, John the Baptist comes on the scene and he's preparing the way for Jesus. In fact, like culturally at that time, if a king was going to come to a region, he would send emissaries out far in advance to villages or towns, and they would say, the king is coming on this date. And so that village or town could prepare for that king's arrival. They would construct buildings. They would make the roads more smooth. They would get ready for this king to come. And that's kind of the picture that you see in John the Baptist's ministry. He is tilling up the soil and preparing the people of that day in that region for the message of the gospel. And the way he did that was calling out sin. He was hardcore. And he called out sin from the secular world and in the religious world. And, of course, you know, he lost his head for that. But people were baptized as followers of John. They were, they were connecting to the message of repentance of John the Baptist. And so those baptisms were a way for people to identify with John the Baptist's message, which is different than the Christian message, which we'll look at. But uh, just as a precursor, the early apostles made a distinction between the baptism that John the Baptist performed and Christian baptism. You'll see why that's important in a little bit. Also, under the history of baptism, the earliest Christian baptisms were by immersion. There's a lot of discussion about this. Usually while standing in a river or other body of water and later in baptismal pools. Immersion means like to baptizo. It means to stick in the water fully. And there was no question about this, it seems, from the early New Testament church. People went down into the water. You see these references. They found a, a body of water, a river, uh, and they stepped into that water to, in order to be baptized. So, and even archaeology supports the early church using these mikvahs or even designing their own baptismal pools where there wasn't water nearby so that people could be immersed in water when they uh, 
followed through on baptism. Next up, the earliest references to infant baptism. It's a big question that we hear all the time here. The earliest references to infant baptism are in the second century and become the norm around the fourth century. So this is important because infant baptism does not appear to be part of the New Testament pattern. I know that that, like, that rattles some of you. You come from a different tradition, and I'm not trying to be you know, uh, controversial. I, I certainly don't want to make anybody mad here, but I, but I want you to see the New Testament pattern when we get to it. And just to understand that when infant baptism came on the scene, and how it became the norm 400 years after the time of Christ. It was not part of the early church's practice. Um, next up, the resurgence of baptism by immersion following conversion coincided with the Reformation of the 15th and 16th century. So you see immersion baptism kind of getting uh, a new day. And it's connected to a rediscovery of how baptism should follow conversion, not something that is performed on an infant. During the Reformation in the 15th and 16th century, in fact, there's a group called the Anabaptists, not Anti-Baptists, but Anabaptists, uh, uh, groups that were part of the Anabaptist movement in this time, like the Mennonites. The Mennonites said, as as they went through the Reformation, they said, you know, the Bible shows people being baptized as choice. The Bible shows people being baptized following conversion. And so they, they made a stand on this, and it, was re it, it really went against the traditional uh, church at that time, the Catholic church, certainly, and uh, even some of the reformers uh, were still holding to infant baptism, and we'll talk about that in a little bit, but uh, these Anabaptists, um, many of them were persecuted for this belief. They were tortured, they were burned at the stake for simply saying, you know, baptism is something you should choose to do. In fact, the irony should not be missed here, like one of the favorite ways to execute an Anabaptist at this time, particularly the Mennonites, was to drown them. So it was as if uh, those in power of the church at that time said, you know, you want to be baptized? We'll baptize you. We'll drown you. So they paid a high price for that. And, you know, it's at this time, like in the 15th, 16th century, that you see the bifurcation of the church, right? You see uh, the Catholic church go this way and the Protestant church go that way. And um, one of those things that was dividing them, there were many things, but one of the things was this, this understanding of who's to be baptized, and how that baptism is to take place. Let's look then at Christian baptism as it appears in the New Testament. You guys still with me? Wave your hands. Put them in the air like you just don't care. Okay. All right. Early Christians chose to be baptized in identification with the message of Jesus as evidence of their allegiance to him and to symbolize their new life in Christ. There's a lot in that statement. And I'm, I want to go back through it. First of all, you see that they were being baptized to identify with the message of Christ. I'm, I, I connect to that message. I'm part of that message. I embrace that message. They also were being baptized in allegiance to him. I'm connecting myself to this rabbi, to this teacher. 
I am part of his, I am a follower of Jesus. And their baptism, as you'll see, symbolized on the outside what, what the Christian theology says happens on the inside when we convert to Christ, when we become Christians. This is reflected in Paul's words in many places, but in Romans 6, 4, Paul says, we were therefore buried with him through baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There's a lot in that, but basically Paul says that this baptism symbolizes that our old life is dead. When we become a Christian, uh, Paul says we're, the old man is dead. We are a new creation. And even our immersion baptism demonstrates this. We put you under the water, which is you died and you were buried. And just as Christ rose again on the third day, so we rise again to a new life. That's all in the symbolism of baptism. And it also is, there's no magic cleansing qualities in the water that we use. Um, but it does symbolize the cleansing that Christ's death on the cross does for our souls. Um, in the early church, some, some churches practiced this tradition where when you were baptized as a new convert, you received a, a, a white robe and you were baptized in that and you kept that as a token to remember the day that you were baptized because your sins are not being washed off by the water, but your sins have been washed away and you're now holy before God. Next up, baptism following conversion is the clear New Testament pattern. Baptism following conversion is the clear New Testament pattern. And by the way, it is also the position of Sunridge. And I realize that there's debate on this and that people come from different traditions. But I want you to take just a few minutes and look at the biblical record here, okay, of what happened. Um, in the New Testament, by far, you're going to find that baptism follows conversion, and typically it is very close to the conversion point. As it doesn't go on, they don't wait years and years and years to be baptized. It's a very close gap. In Acts 2, at Pentecost, Peter preaches, and he gives, you know, if you know this passage, he gives a super straightforward gospel message, and he says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He says, repent and be baptized. Before you're baptized, make a conscious decision to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus Christ. In verse 41 of the same chapter, we find that those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. So think about this. From the very get-go, the message at Pentecost isn't just the gospel. It is believe in Jesus and then identify yourself with this message by being baptized from the very start. And think about what a logistical nightmare this was. See, they didn't have baptismal pools. They didn't have a written scripture. They didn't have a policy of how to do baptism. They didn't have an organization and yet the message in this moment is believe and be baptized. And 3,000 people respond. If it, if it wasn't that important, 
then why would they bother from the very beginning to say that? And why would they go through the scramble? Just put yourself there. Imagine if we had 3,000 people that wanted to be baptized today at our church, and we have, a, we have a place to do it, and we have a policy in dressing rooms and towels. It would be a logistical nightmare. In Acts 8.12, um, when people believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. And then later, Philip is traveling on the road, and he encounters the Ethiopian eunuch. You may know that phrase, but this is a person that is uh, high up. In, uh, he's either connected to the queen of Ethiopia or a very rich, very important woman, and he's her, her chief financial officer. And he encounters Philip and hears the gospel, and he responds to it. And in Acts 8.36, as they traveled along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, look, here's water. Why shouldn't I be baptized? You see, here's a person who, for all we know, is not religiously inclined, didn't grow up as a traditional Jew or anything else, and yet when he hears the gospel, it's clear to him that the next step is to be baptized. Why shouldn't I be baptized? And he gave orders to stop the chariot, and then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, again, getting into the water to be immersed, and Philip baptized him. You see, what I'm, what I'm trying to point out here, and by the way, like in your notes, there are just, you'll see under this point, just a ton of scriptures, just scrolling through the book of Acts, where it says, believe and be baptized, believe and be baptized. And I thought about reading every one of those to you for effect, but you get it. Take the time to read these passages and see if you don't agree that the overwhelming evidence from the New Testament is that baptism follows conversion, which makes belief in Christ a necessity. You should not be baptized if you have not believed in Christ. But if you have believed in Jesus Christ, you've placed your faith in Jesus, you should be baptized. It's part of the New Testament pattern. Now, next point. There's no clear instance of infant baptism in the New Testament. I'm not trying to pick on any particular tradition here. But I, we get this question a lot, so I thought it was important to answer. There's no clear instance of infant baptism in the New Testament. You say, well, well, wait a minute. I remember, like, there's some verses. Well, to be fair, I'd like to point out one of the ones that, that those who, and many of them much smarter than I, can I just say, um, this would be one of the passages that someone who holds the infant baptism being in the Bible, that they would point to. Okay, so let's check it out. And here's, here's the background. Um, Paul has been in Philippi. He's been preaching the gospel. It makes the community mad. They jail him. And, the ja and then they're miraculously, he, Silas, and Timothy are miraculously uh, released from prison. A miracle happens. And this, this prison guard witnesses this. And he's not just afraid, he's on board with the gospel now. He's on Paul's, uh, you know, wagon. And they share the gospel with him. In Acts 16.31, they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. You and your household. 
Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. So they go and they preach the gospel, all, not just to him, but also to those in his family that live in his household. And at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds, and immediately he and his family were baptized. Now here, if you read between the lines, what some scholars will do is say, see, this is, there's no way that all of his family could have received the gospel at once. There must have been small children in his household. So you have infants or children being baptized. But that's, that's a lot of speculation into the passage. In fact, in verse 34, it says the jailer brought them into his house, kind of like more commentary, and set a meal before them. And he was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. So there's an indication here that there's belief as well, not just baptism. So we don't know. We don't know for sure. It's not explicit that there, was, that there were small children or infants in this household. And I would suggest that when a passage is unclear, that we use the clear passages to interpret that unclear. And what is very clear as you go through the book of Acts is believe and then be baptized. And I realize that people debate this. Um, so think about some of these things associated with, with this. And so let's talk a little bit about how infant baptism comes onto the scene. First of all, there's no theology of baptism at the time of Paul. It doesn't develop till like four centuries later. It remembers like they don't have all the scriptures. They don't, you know, they may not even have any uh, in certain areas. And yet people believe the gospel because they know eyewitnesses or they were, they saw the risen Christ and they come to Christ. There's no theology. There's no system of how to believe these things or what we should do. And so this theology of baptism doesn't really uh, develop until the third or fourth century. And along that way, people like Augustine, we just read his quote earlier, he, he believed that you had to be baptized in order to be a Christian. So if you have church leaders who are embracing the idea that you must be baptized to be saved, wouldn't you baptize your children? And that's, that's part of what is happening at this time. And working against that, and, and sometimes in conjunction with it and trying to make these streams come together, is that there are all these heresies developing. Again, no systematic theology. All these ideas, this is part of what drove early Christians to develop theology, a way of approaching the Bible and understanding and categorizing things. Um, some traditions started requiring you, you, you could believe in Christ, but you couldn't be baptized until you went through a bunch of classes. You may know that from experience. You might have gone through a catechism, which is a great idea, especially if there's all these misconceptions about what it means to be a Christian. And they wanted to assure that when they baptized people, that they had a good understanding of the truth. It's a great idea. It's not a biblical idea, though. It's important to point that out. And so you have infant baptisms and necessity shaping how baptisms occur. The method of baptism. If we're going to baptize infants, we... We can't immerse them. So this is part of what drives sprinkling, along with necessity of not, there isn't always a body of water nearby. 
in the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, uh, they, they begin to think of baptism as a way or, or a means of grace. That means that they start to believe that baptism actually does something, like it confers grace to a person. You may have come from a tradition like that with communion, that um, there are some traditions that believe when we take communion, that when you drink the wine and eat the bread, that it's actually becoming the blood of Christ and the body of Christ. Uh, the word for that is transubstantiation, right? Who's right? I don't know, honestly. I, I can see how people would defend either one, but there's no explicit place in the Bible where New Testament authors give salvation qualities to baptism. Uh, early reformers felt that baptism initiated you to the church, the visible church, that, you, that when you were baptized as an infant, you were placed under a covenant of grace, kind of like, like a weak guarantee that you will become a Christian. We have a practice here called child dedication, which is sort of the same thing, except that we don't think that because we dedicate you on this stage that you will automatically become a Christian. In fact, what we say is it's more a dedication of the parents and the church as a community. We dedicate ourselves to seeing that that child knows the gospel, is raised in a gospel-centered and loving God-loving community, and they know the love of God early so that they're inclined to believe, not to be driven away from the faith. But we don't ascribe, you know, any kind of extra quality to that. Does that make sense? Um, and, of course, you have the Anabaptists, which, who we've already mentioned, who who were insistent that baptism, you can't baptize infants because they have not believed and they have not made a choice to believe. And if you know anything about Reformed theology or Protestant theology, it is that we are independently, we're like fundamentally independent and we believe in free will. We believe that each one of us must choose Christ. I can't give you my faith. Your parents can't give you your faith. Your uncle that, or your great-grandpa that was a Christian that took you to church twice, uh, that can't make you a Christian. You have to choose faith for yourself. And so we believe the same is true of baptism, that you, once you choose Christ, you choose also as a self, having self-will to be able to choose to place your allegiance with Christ in a public way. So, wrapping all that up, here's a statement that's in your note sheet. You don't have to fill any blanks out. The answer is already there, but I want to read it to you because this just summarizes what I've been saying. Baptism is the first thing God asks us to do once we believed in Jesus Christ. Believe and be baptized. Believe and be baptized. Baptism is a rich tradition established by Jesus and his earliest followers as a way to publicly acknowledge belief in him and to proclaim our desire to follow him to the best of our ability. Does that make sense? You guys still with me? All right, yeah, maybe, okay. All three of you. So 
let's just spend last couple of minutes here. Let me just rattle off a few questions. These aren't in your notes, but they're, they're frequently asked around here. And I just want to ping each one of them and give a quick answer. Who should be baptized? Should I be baptized? If you believed in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. And you should do it as close to the time as possible when you believed. If you have not believed in Christ, you should not be baptized. That's the only reason to not follow Jesus in baptism. Is baptism necessary in order to be saved? No. The Bible's really clear on this. In fact, Paul, I love what Paul says in Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from, from the dead, you will be saved. Salvation is by grace, the grace of God. Through faith, we place our faith in Christ. That's it. To add anything to that is really to diminish the great sacrifice of Jesus Christ. If it's Jesus plus anything else, then why did Jesus die? It doesn't make any sense to me at all, and it doesn't make any biblical sense either. So uh, You're saved whether you're baptized or not. Be assured of that. So, the next question is, if baptism isn't necessary to be a Christian, why should I do it? Right? Well, maybe you should do it because you want to publicly proclaim your faith in Christ. You should maybe do it because the Word of God seems to indicate it's the first step of obedience for a believer. And you know, just because it isn't part of salvation, does, does that mean it's like, okay, that doesn't count? I mean, salvation is based on the gospel of Jesus Christ and our reception of it, right? Everything else is optional. Does that mean that it's not important? Is it still important to, to be a part of a church, to read my Bible, to give, to pursue Christ and Christ-likeness, to live out a godly life, to, to, say, to reject sin, to share the gospel with my friends and family. Those are all very important things that aren't part of salvation. Additionally, if you're one who's like, well, if it's not part of salvation, remember this, Jesus was baptized. Jesus sent his disciples out into the world to make disciples and to baptize them. And being baptized after, being, after placing your faith in Christ is the overwhelming New Testament pattern. These are all good reasons to do it, even though it's not part of becoming a Christian. You know, for a lot of people, like me especially, that baptism, like, it drove something down for me. I happened to have become a Christian in 10th grade and rode my 10 speed back to church that night, and I got baptized on the same day. They did a good job of follow-up on that altar call in that Baptist church, you know. And I might have told you before, but it rained on my way there that night. And so I got sprinkled and immersed. So I'm covered <laughs> completely. It's the overwhelming pattern that you see in the New Testament. And like, I can remember that day. I remember that better than my prayer. I kind of like, it's kind of a blur walking up to the front and some guy in a suit talking to me and making me kneel at the altar and pray. That's how they did it back then. And uh, my buddy was next to me. I don't remember a lot of that, but I remember getting baptized. It's something, I don't know, that symbol just drives it home. So think about that. 
Um, what if I was baptized as an infant is another question we get all the time. You know, since there's no incident, clear incident of infant baptism in the Bible, and baptism like faith is a choice, I would recommend that you get rebaptized, even if you were baptized as an infant. Because remember, you did not make that choice. Don't you want to publicly choose Christ? In fact, there are incidents in Acts where people were rebaptized to get it right. Let me, let, let me point out one. There were followers of John the Baptist who had not yet heard the gospel or they had heard the gospel and not yet been baptized. This is clear in Acts 19.3. So Paul asked these disciples that he ran into, what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said John's baptism was a baptism of repentance, and he told the people to believe in the one coming after him, that is Jesus. In other words, your belief system isn't complete. And on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. There's a great example of someone doing it again to get it right. Uh, what if my previous baptism was by sprinkling and not immersion? Well, you know, it's a matter of conscience, but... You know, there's no clear indication in the Bible that, that everyone was immersed or fully immersed. You know, I, you can definitely see someone walking down in the water. They didn't dunk them all. Nacho Libre just dunked the guy's face. So, you know, they probably walked down in the water. Maybe some got dunked, you know. You have all this debate that's gone through the ages, like dunk them three times in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. That's like CrossFit. Um, <laughs> You know, there's people that, like, baptize face forward. I forget what that was all about. We talked about it in Bible college. Um, you know, it's not, the, the method isn't that important. I would say the timing is more important, that it was a personal choice, that you made that choice to be baptized. That's more important than, than anything else. It's more about timing. How about this one? What if I don't have my act together yet? Yeah, so let me just, let me look. This will just be our secret in the second service. But if you think everyone sitting around you and the staff that serves here and the pastor that's sitting up here right now has their act together enough to say, I'm dialed, I'm ready to be baptized, it's not true. That's a myth. Your act is never completely together. And baptism, remember, in the New Testament, especially if it's close, it's like the beginning of your belief. Maybe you've been a Christian like 10, 15, 20, 30 years. Like, don't you know more? Don't you understand more about the faith? Sometimes you wish like, man, I, wish I, I really wish I could have known that back then, saved myself some trouble or whatever. It's like, you never have it all together. You never know it all. So don't worry about having your act together because you never will. How about this one? Can I be baptized more privately? Of course you can. We baptize people in pools. We have the secret place we take you to. Yeah, we're, we respect that. I mean, it can be, give you all kinds of anxiety to come up here and be baptized. We get it. But consider this. Consider that what a blessing you're going to be to everybody in the church when you get baptized in this room with this audience. And remember that everybody in this audience, they're for you. A lot of them have been there. That's why without us giving a... Here's how we'll do baptism at Sunridge. People applaud. 
They, they say amen. They, they whoop it up. It's like they whistle. It's like it's crazy around here when we baptize because they're all for you. So I would really encourage you to do it in this public way here. If you want to go out in the desert like an Ethiopian eunuch, we'll do that too. Just drive your chariot. Okay. So just to wrap up, baptism in the New Testament follows belief. And there was an urgency to that follow-through. One of the places that I know that that's true is, you know, the Apostle Paul was miraculously converted, and then he was mentored by this man named Ananias. And when Ananias is discipling him, and he's like coaching him, helping him understand Christianity. And as he guides him in his newfound faith in Acts twenty-two sixteen, he says, and now what are you waiting for? To the Apostle Paul. Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away, calling on his name. What are you waiting for? If you're a believer and you have not been baptized, what are you waiting for? Do you, do, you have a, do you have a biblical conviction that says, well, I'm not going to be baptized because of this? Or if you do, I would love to know what it is. It'll help me the next time I teach this. You know, you will never regret being obedient to the Scripture as a Christian. Maybe you say, well, you know, like, I, you, you've convinced me biblically, but I have all these traditions in my head. And, and so, which is heavier? Your understanding of Scripture or tradition? Jesus constantly is like rattling us. And this is one place he might be rattling you. Some of you might be saying, you know, I've got to think about this a while. Or some of you might say, I have some questions. Okay. You get a buy. Think about it and get your questions answered and then do it. What are you waiting for? Next Sunday, we're going to be baptizing here. And uh, I hope you're really wrestling with this right now. I hope your hands are sweaty and everything because this is going to be a great moment in your life if you've been putting it off. You, can, you, can, you need to let us know, either with your in-touch card. You can put on there, I want to be baptized. You can put on there, I have questions. We have Pam Dvorak, who coordinates our women's director, coordinates all of our baptism questions. You can contact her, email pdvorak at sundrichurch.org. She's also in our list of staff. But don't wait. Take that step. You'll be glad you did. Let's pray. God, thank you um, 